You know, if I had come home from church uh, anytime in my youth, especially, and told my mom that I was bringing some dope merch from church, <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what her response would have been. Um, I think um, I think one of the things that uh, you'll recognize uh, as we get into the sermon tonight is we're we're actually going to kind of be talking about. Uh, how people say things, and then how you hear things. Um, sometimes they're a little bit different. <clears throat> I told Joel that it was really good that we were having this Advent series and that he was kind of forcing me to get in the middle of it because I was raised, uh, I was reared in a Southern Baptist church. And so uh, Advent was something that the Methodists did. And I didn't know anything more about Advent than I knew about Lent. And all I knew about Lent was that they couldn't do something they really enjoyed for 40 days. So I am learning here as well as you. Um, Joel did mention a little bit about ad, Advent. It actually comes from the Latin term Adventus, okay? And so as we remember his first coming, uh, his first Advent, his first coming to us, we also want to remember that we actually as Christians, those of us who are followers of Christ, have a second coming to look forward to uh, the first one established us in him. The second one was when he comes and gets us. And so we want to be looking forward to both of these. And so we're going to begin with hope uh, today. As you uh, have found in, we don't have a um, uh, journal to read along with this time around. So please just use your scripture. The original Hebrew text, as you might have noticed at the beginning, calls this a song of ascents. Now, the title is not a later edition, something like a chapter and verse division that came along later. You know, this is actually a part of the Hebrew script. They, they were trying to tell us something about the particular psalm when they told us that it was a song of ascent. There's 15 psalms that carry this title, and it can be translated correctly in English as song of ascents or the song of degrees or the song of steps. Um, even the songs of goings up, I believe, was the way some of the folks in Old English referred to it. Scholars have suggested many different understandings of what this might mean. Anything from the musical structure of the psalm to the maybe even the physical steps going up the temple because there were uh, 15 steps to the temple and there's 15 psalms that match. Interesting that they were written before the temple was built, so maybe that's not what was going on. Uh, could have been the journey of uh, pilgrims going up to Jerusalem singing these psalms as they went. Some have even uh, suggested metaphorical meanings, like just the fact that you're lifting your heart from earth to heaven. Now, I have to admit that I'm kind of like John Calvin, who said, this being a matter of small moment, I'm not disposed to make it the subject of elaborate investigation. Suffice it to say that the idea of lifting or being lifted uh, applies across all of the different variations, and none of the theology changes regardless of how we see it. We do want today to allow this psalm to move us from the low place where the psalmist started, you know, those depths he was talking about, to a glorious place of what he found in the end. One of the things I noticed is that this psalm does use some words that are not used in our modern English the same way. And so if we just hear it with a 2020 uh, ear, we're sometimes going to miss the meaning that the psalmist was coming from. The truth of Scripture is unchanging and eternal, but the languages that we express it with are constantly changing. None of them have stayed the same. 
We, we know that at least in major portions, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic show up, and yet none of those languages are the same. Greek people in Greece right now don't even speak Koinonia Greek like the New Testament does. So we have to be careful as we listen. This is why it's so incredibly important that we depend on the Holy Spirit to help us interpret to us what the truth uh, is from God. Because time, culture, and language have just been a constant erosion process in this. And so we have to recenter ourselves in His truth regularly. There was a movie years ago, some of you may not remember it. <clears throat> I see a few of you in here that probably will. Uh, Back to the Future. So this teenager named Marty gets in this time machine, which happened to be a DeLorean created by Doc Brown, and he goes back in time about 30 years. And when he gets back there, he's kind of blown away by the fact that he's 30 years back in time, and he meets the 30-year younger Doc Brown. And so he, Marty is trying to kind of get over this impact it's having on him, and he's like, wow, this is heavy. This is really heavy, man. And Doc Brown is like, I don't get it. Like, is there a change in the gravitational field later on that, that causes everything in the earth to be heavy, heavier than it is now? They were just missing terms. Marty was using it in a way that Doc Brown didn't understand. And so as we look at those terms tonight in the scriptures, I want to make sure that we're actually hearing them the way they're supposed to be. I mean, just think about the words in the United States today that have changed in the last 20 or 30 years. If I were to go back to 1990... <clears throat> or specifically if Joel were to go back to 1990, and he walks in and starts popping off about something being viral, okay? Well, well, what is the people's reaction going to be? All right, they're going to get scared. They're going to want to know what this virus is and, and what kind of pandemic is breaking out in the world. If he goes in and he starts talking about tweeting, they're going to think he's a little weird. You know, that's what birds do, Joel. What, what are you talking about? Or the cloud, or texting, to say I'm texting someone, would leave somebody in 1990 going, I don't, I don't get it. Or, or it gets worse from there, okay? I've heard some of these. I don't even know what some of these mean. I just hear y'all using them. You know, what about when you troll somebody? <laughs> okay? Or I heard Chris say catfish the other day. I still don't know what catfish really means, okay? He's going to have to explain it. Or I hear people talk about their skills, and they're like, oh, those are sick, wicked, or mad. To a person in 1990, this would just be so completely confusing as to what you guys were talking about, just like dope merch. You know, you can imagine exactly what it's like, the look on people's faces when they would hear these words, because if you've tried them out on your grandparents lately, then you got the same look that you've seen on my face. So before we go back in time, uh, let's realize that some words have changed so different. You know, the, the meaning of the word from when it originally came out is so different that we would actually be offensive if we started using it. So did you know that cute originally meant clever or shrewd? You know, you ever heard a little old lady say, don't get cute with me. See, that comes from that old way of using it. A bully was your sweetheart. That's, that's before my time. A matrix was a female breeding animal. To garble meant to sift. Assassin was a drug addict. It actually means hemp eater, okay? Silly meant you were innocent, and if I called you nice, I just called you a fool. 
All right. So words are changing. It's not just that they're changing, but then we got to think about the ones that we can't even understand them if we don't have context to go along with them. We use words like this. If I'm bound, am I headed somewhere or tied up? Y'all can actually like respond. Headed somewhere or tied up? Yeah. If I trim, am I detaching or attaching? Yeah, Chris was trimming our tree today, okay? But you trim your grass. Hey, if I have it fixed, did I repair or sterilize? All depends on whether you're talking about the dog, right? If I hold up, did I support or impede? Did I hold you up or did I hold you up? If I skin something, did I add a covering or did I remove it? Because I've been told I need skins on my phone. But I always thought we skinned the chicken. <clears throat> Let's make sure that as we study God's word, we're listening for the eternal truth. Let's make sure that we're actually trying to hear these words in context. So I'm going to point out a few as we go through tonight that we need to be very careful about. We need to let the Holy Spirit guide us into the truth of what these words meant in their proper context. So I want to consider the psalm in four parts. The psalmist is first looking at his past. Okay, this is what has happened, what has gotten him to the place where he's crying out from the depths. Something has gone down in his life. Then he's going to talk about his position, his promise, and his proclamation. So we begin with the past in verse 1 and 2. What is it that brings him to the point that you hear this cry in his voice? Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Now, I hear Jonathan's cry, I mean, uh, Jonah's cry in the belly of the fish when he's crying out to God. I hear David's cry while he's running from Saul. I hear Elijah's heart when Jezebel got after him. You remember she told him she was going to do to him the same thing that had been done to the prophets of Baal? This is somebody who's in a bad way, but I can't help but think about the modern-day versions of this. I think about that single mother who's gotten to the place where she doesn't know how she's going to be able to take care of her child. I think about the parents of a child who has cancer and they've just had to call in hospice. I think about the addict who finds themselves in rehab for the third time. For that person who has been dealing with a black cloud of depression so long that they've just come to the conclusion there's nothing they can do to change it, to make it any better. What about the young person who's trapped in generational poverty so deep that there just does not even seem to be a path out of it? This is life, regardless of whether they like it or not. But see, those are the, those are the really rough ones. Those are the ones outside of you, maybe. But what about if, if it is you? What about if you're the one hiding behind that Facebook, that Instagram, or the TikTok facade? Maybe you're the one that's hurting, and you can't even really explain why. Maybe you're scared that the world's going to finally, one of these days, realize you're just not all that in a bag of chips. Our desperation is relative to what we have experienced. We can only know the pain of our own experience. 
And solving it by comparison to those who have it worse or better is never the solution. You start, you start comparing yourself to those who have it worse. What happens one of these days when you can't honestly say it could get worse? When it is so bad, you cannot imagine a way for it to get any worse. Where does that leave you? <laughs> what about when you start comparing yourself to someone who's got it better? And you find that you have it better. I mean, you can't look around and stop naming the blessings. And yet this desperation remains. Something has settled in on you that you don't even really understand why it's there. You just know it is. The psalmist sent his cry to the only one who is able, regardless of circumstance, to receive his plea because he has a limitless supply of power and of resource and of love. He's crying out to a God who's guaranteed never to be busy with higher priorities. The writer also comes with an accurate understanding of God's heart. See, God is love. He doesn't just exhibit it. We talk about people being a loving person. We mean that that's the way they act. What we're talking about is a God who that's what he exudes. We define it because of who he is. Mercy and grace towards his creation are normal to God. Wrath, judgment, those are things he doesn't want to do. Those are things that he has to do. Mercy and grace is what comes naturally. If he's keeping score, this psalmist understands, I don't have a chance. If God has actually been ticking off on the list everything I've ever done wrong, I don't have a leg to stand on. Even if his plight is not caused by sin, the psalmist understands that I am not righteous from my own track record. But he knows his position because listen to what he says in verse 3 and 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Mark iniquities, that's, that's keeping a list. That's checking it twice, okay? That's where all that garbage comes from, that idea that we're going to be a tick mark somewhere, every little thing we've done, and we're going to have to stand and listen to that. No, what God says is, you wouldn't be able to survive if I kept track of your sin. The compound truth is affirmed by the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That would have been a rough place to have a verse end, wouldn't it? Okay, I mean, that's just bad news. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Okay, end of story. Everybody goes to hell. Bible has three chapters. We're done. Thank God that's not where he stopped. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The psalmist's question implies that he understands the reality of his sins against God, but he also comes boldly before the throne because he knows that God's mercy and grace are his because he fears the Lord. Fear is the first word that I want us to really take a hard look at tonight. It's one of the words where we could get mixed up a little bit. It's one where if we don't understand what it is to have a healthy fear of God, we're going to miss a huge blessing. 
With you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. This almost seems a little backwards. That the forgiveness that you have for me is actually part of the reason why I fear you. But when you think about it, our psalmist is not working from the revelation of Jesus Christ, but somehow the Spirit has imparted to him the truth. <clears throat> God has the power of forgiveness in his grace. And healthy fear is when we realize how helpless and hopeless our condition is. But we realize that he holds that forgiveness. If the judge only has the power to condemn, then resignation and hopelessness remain. It is the fact that the Lord has the ability to rescue that causes us to fear an outcome where we are not rescued. Fear the Lord is central to the psalmist's understanding of his position. He is both guilty and forgiven. Feared would also be correctly translated as reverenced or awed. But we don't need to hurry away from that more base definition, the one that makes the hair tingle on the back of your neck and the chills run up your spine. You think of how many awe-inspiring sights are now witnessed from a safe distance. We get to see them. We just don't have to be right in the middle of them. I mean, what would it feel to stand on the bow of a ship facing into a hurricane? Let's go with like a Category 5. A whole different story if to watch it on the news. What's it like when I step up to the rim of a volcano so close that I can feel this unpredictable inferno? I've seen documentaries that doesn't cause that in me. I've tried to imagine what an astronaut must have felt standing on the moon, looking back at the earth he came from, knowing how fragile his transportation system was. I'm never going to be able to capture that looking at a picture of what he saw. We get, to, we get to experience things from a distance, but not God. God, it's up close and personal. In my shop, there's plenty of tools that I fear. Okay, I've got some scars that I can show you after the service that show you where my fear was not healthy enough. That, a, that an additional dose of fear would have helped out. One of the ones that blows my mind is my welder. I take this little box that I could actually carry in here. I plug it in an outlet just like you plug in your Christmas lights. And I pull a trigger and steel turns to liquid metal in front of my face. Now, that's pretty powerful. But I used to work for the power company. And I will never forget what it felt like standing within a few feet of a half million volt power line, 500,000 volts, so intense that the voltage field around the wire was causing the air to crackle. You could hear it. Now, I had no doubt in my mind that that thing was not after me. It was not out to get me. It was not out to hurt me. But I also had no problem understanding what would happen if I walked just a little bit closer like a bug in a bug zapper. Our level of fear, our understanding of what it means to stand both in God's shelter and in His wings, to be completely protected, but at the same time to tremble from His power. 
Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is beginning of wisdom. It actually makes me smart. Matthew 10.28 says that we should fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Man, when I was a kid, I read through that the first time. I thought, surely we're talking about the bad guy here. No, we're talking about the good guy. Fear will impact our decisions and our actions. It is an incredible comfort to be held in love by one so awesome, so powerful, so dreadful that all of your enemies are shown to be absolutely powerless. But also trembling is an authentic response when we stand in the shadow of his protection and we feel the awe of what it would mean to reject him. To think when you're around some of your friends who you understand are doing just that, and to feel that dread and that fear for them. Fear's the word I struggled most with in this sermon because I feel like even with all I've said, my, my explanation is still inadequate to capture why it is so life-giving for us to fear God. Verse 5 and 6 add three more words that are critical in our understanding. As he talks about the promise, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Yea, more than watchman for the morning. Now, wait, word, and hope. They're, used, they're words that we use almost daily. But none of them, the way we use them, are the way the psalmist is using them. Wait is a word we use when we want someone to stop what they're doing and not proceed until we give them our permission. Okay, but that's not what we're talking about here. I mean, this is more like, you know when you've seen something on the video on your phone and it has like a really cool ending, it's a big surprise or it's something really funny or something very awesome and powerful, and, and you're showing it to somebody, well, you've already seen the video, you know how it ends. And so, you know, you huddle up with them and you look at it and you go, wait for it, wait for it. Because you don't want them to look away at just the wrong time. You want them to get the full impact of it. There's an expectation in this type of waiting. There's a waiting with full assurance of what's coming. It's almost synonymous. In fact, it's used typically synonymously with biblical hope. Isaiah 40.30 is correctly translated in different, you know, that's the one that says those that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. Well, it's also correctly translated those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. Waiting embodies an anticipation of something sure. It's not a waiting and doing nothing. It's an anticipation of God's promises even while we choose to not stop and try to fix it on our own outside of the power of Jesus Christ. Our job is to trust and obey as we wait. God's job is to bring about the outcomes that are in keeping with his purposes. We so often dabble in outcomes that we cannot possibly control. And in the process, miss what we should have been doing, the trusting and the obeying in the middle of our waiting. God's word is often understood to mean the Bible. And I would agree, it includes the Bible. But God's Word is so much more. You think about this, God's Word creates reality. But the sheer fact that He spoke brought this world into existence. 
it can never be fully captured as ink on a page for all time because it's both living and active and never changing. These descriptions don't even seem to go together for us. How can we possibly understand this? But we have to remember language, culture, and time are constantly changing. As we're trying to con consider something, to comprehend something that is not changing. We have to realize that the continual power, the creating power of everything that is breathed out by God impacts us. And that's why it's impossible to grasp God's words just reading them on a page. If it were not for the Holy Spirit taking what is embodied in those words and bringing it to life in our hearts, we would be clueless. We would be just as deaf and dumb and blind as Jesus said we were. What we're talking about is supernatural. Our hope in His Word is as our hope is in Jesus. The Bible contains all the revealed truth that God knew we would need to come to Him and to advance His kingdom. But it does not contain all God has ever spoken or will speak. God's Word is continually going out and it will never contradict itself. But we must hear and know the voice of our shepherd. The Apostle John literally equated the person of Jesus Christ with the Word of God. The Word, capital W, the Word knows me personally. He knows you personally. And He speaks His truth in ways that are tailor-made to us. He understands the depth of where our heart is. And He understands how to connect with it nonetheless. It reveals the reality of what we currently possess and it guarantees all of what is ours in the future. Now, hope is another word. In our very American vernacular, hope is basically wishful thinking. Okay, we hope our team wins. I hoped my team would win last night. That failed. I did not have that kind of hope. We hope it does or does not rain. We hope we don't get cancer. Okay, but that's not the hope the psalmist is talking about here. Nothing like it. Wishful thinking is completely 180 degrees opposite of what we're talking about. The psalmist is declaring a guaranteed outcome in his future. God's promise is the psalmist's hope. Our hope in God's word, in Jesus Christ's finished work, and in eternity in heaven, it's more sure than that watchman who was waiting on the sunrise. It is more sure to us than that the sun would rise. Because keep in mind, God stopped it one time. And there's nothing he hadn't said he's not going to stop it in the future. If he wants the sun to stand still, that's well within his power. Our hope is more sure than the sunrise. But it is not possible that what God has purposed will not come to pass. That's guaranteed. Our hope... God's promise to us is a possession guaranteed by the spirit that he has deposited, deposited in us. The watchman waited in anticipation of the sunrise because that was the end of their shift. We stand sure in God's promise and our hope because we anticipate the sun's coming again to begin the life that is really life. Keep in mind, the life you have now hasn't even gotten to the level of really being life yet. 
That's what starts when he comes back. The psalmist now turns his attention from his past position and promise to the proclamation that these truths caused to burst out of him. Verses 7 and 8 are basically his shout. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem from Israel from all his iniquities. This is what happens when the psalmist comes to the realization of where I was and where God found me and what he did and what he has placed in me. I got to tell somebody. I got I to gotta, I gotta get the news out. Okay, the natural and overwhelming response of the psalmist's realizations, it's not a chore coming from some duty that he owed to God. This is his heart bursting with truth and wanting its impact to go to the people who needed it the most. The proclamation of our hope cannot be energized solely by gratitude. They wore me out when I was a kid telling me I ought to be able to do all this stuff for God because he had done so much stuff for me. And fortunately, I found out the truth one day. That won't empower me. That won't lead me to a life of victory in Jesus. Okay? It is good to be glad. It is good to have gratitude. But Jesus Christ is what powers me, not my own gratitude. It will not go out to the nations because we're doing our duty to God. We can't show up at the door with flowers and our wife says, oh, honey. And we say, well, it's just my duty. <laughs> there it goes. Might as well toss those. It can't be a duty. We never get to be lights set on a stand in a city on a hill because we've memorized a methodology of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ in a succinct fashion. Okay, that is good to know. It is helpful. It's a tool to go in your tool belt. But if you're expecting that to replace the bursting forth that someone ought to see in you when you're talking about Jesus Christ, it ain't going to happen. People read through the religious with much greater ease than we realize. God looks at our heart. And, and the crazy thing is our heart bleeds through whether we want it to or not. People know. They know the difference between somebody who believes what they're saying and somebody who memorized it. Somebody who's got the right answer. There's a vast difference in listening to someone tell a story that they experienced and listening to someone tell somebody else's story. We instinctively know when someone's trying to convince us of something for their benefit. Or if their sharing is not from motivation from love for me, it's what they want to gain. <clears throat> our proclamation to the world must come from our personal experience of who God is in and to us. It's got to be our story. It's not one we can memorize. Our plea to the world must resonate with the love that we actually feel for them. I can't be just telling you the right thing because I know it's the right thing to do and I just really don't like you. That's never going to land. But, but if you walk away from our conversation and you're like, I think he actually really went out on a limb there trying to tell me something just because he loves me. 
It's amazing what they can hear. It's amazing what hard truths will make it into them if they know we love them. Now listen, once again, if this is not where you're at, I mean, if that coworker of yours is not, you're not feeling the love right now, but you know they need Jesus, the, the great news is that Jesus is not asking you to fix it. Jesus is asking you to do what the psalmist did. Come get with him in a quiet place and say, Lord, it ain't there right now. If you don't create it in me, I can't give it to them. We've got to recognize and confess. And confess just means I'm agreeing with God. Lord, I know I'm supposed to be loving this person, but it's just not happening right now. That's just agreeing with God on what's really in my heart. And we got to agree about the truth of our present state. Where am I with you, God? Am I really sheltered in your wings? Am I feeling your power? Am I overwhelmed by what it is that you do for me and through me and in me? Or am I just really trying to fake it till I make it? God's supernatural work has to get done in our hearts for this to change. If our story is anything less than personal experience, if our reason for sharing has anything to do with duty instead of delight, if our love for others is still more head than heart, then Jesus has got a whole lot more for us. People don't rush out to do the religious before you've done the serious work of being still and knowing Jesus Christ. Recognize that people can tell whether we have spent time with Jesus or we have spent time learning about Jesus. Follow the upward path we see from the psalmist. Be honest about our past with God. Recognize the position that we hold in him. Wrestle out the biblical hope and the promise until you can't help it. You just find yourself overwhelmed and shouting, Oh, lost and dying world. Hope in the Lord. Find what I've found in the anticipation of his coming. We broke it. We can't fix it. Jesus has seen us in this helpless and hopeless estate. And he's loved us. He loved us with his death, which ransomed us. And, he, and his life, which empowers us. And it restores us to what we should have been. We have no hope if Jesus does not know us. And his arms are open wide for us to know him and for him to know us and us to be known by him. So find yourself screaming, join me until with him you can't help but stop and proclaim. I've been walking with you for about three years and I've realized you are Christ, the son of the living God. That's what he's asking. You don't have to know it all when you get out of the boat. Just keep walking with me because it's going to dawn on you. You hang around me long enough. You follow me long enough. The truth will settle in your soul. You are Christ, the son of the living God. And you think about it. Peter still had a long way to go after he said that. You are my hope. Your advent is sure. So come, Lord Jesus, come. My wish. Notice how I did that? Not my hope. My wish. My wish this first Sunday in our Advent series is that all of us remember 
what the first coming of Jesus Christ fulfilled in prophecy and what it provided for the world. Our promise, our psalmist joined that great cloud of witnesses and with those who recognized Jesus during his earthly time, they saw their long-promised Savior do exactly what God had covenanted that he would do. He restored man to God. He provided living hope. My hope is Jesus. In this living hope, I anticipate his second coming. And I want God to give me and all of us an urgency to share this while there's still time. 